Moses' life did not start pretty. He was born in the world a slave. He was an Israelite, or the passage several times uh, says a Hebrew, those same thing as the scriptures talk about Israelites or Hebrews. He was an Israelite born into Egyptian slavery. And even worse, just before he was born, there had been an order laid out from Pharaoh that um, any slave boys, any baby boys that were born to the slaves were to be taken and thrown into the Nile River to drown. Apparently, the Israelite population was growing too quickly. And it was becoming really difficult for their Egyptian slave masters to control them as they were becoming as large a group of people as they were. Exodus 2 tells us the story of Moses being born into this time of significant pain and violence. In this preparation for adoption that uh, many of you know Callie and I are on, we have had to do a lot of training. And there's so many things that they have taught us and that we've learned along the way as we prepare for this process. And one of those things that um, that I don't know if I knew it before or didn't, but just the weight of it has become more and more significant of learning about the massive amounts of, of, of struggle and, uh, and difficulty that come in the life of a baby before they're even born. So this adoption or not adoption, it doesn't really matter. As, as babies are born, there's, there's stress that comes from the mom and from, from life practices and life cycles and all this taking place that, that makes its way to this baby even before it's born. And as I read this story, I imagine the strain and the stress and the pressure that must have been on Moses' mother with the fear of this baby that was coming. And if this baby was born, a little boy, then... She would be expected or the midwife would be expected that someone would be expected to throw him in the river to drown. And that stress that she surely suffered through made its way to Moses. And it doesn't tell us that in the story of Exodus because they had absolutely no idea that that would be the reality. But science today says that is the way that things work. That's what would have been experienced by this baby. So already born in all the stress and all this difficulty and all this pain, then immediately he's taken into hiding. And for three months, this baby is hidden from everyone, imagining, pretending that he was never born, that he isn't alive, that he isn't here. We're told that by the time he reached three months that he couldn't be hidden anymore. That things had gotten too difficult. So his mom took him and cast him away. Put him in a basket, laid it in the river, and left him there. Now, I don't say cast away as in she didn't want him or she decided she was uninterested. She was doing everything that she could to save his life. That was her goal and that was her intention. She knew that she couldn't kept him, keep him. And yet, if you're a three-month-old, all this is is trauma. Babies don't understand circumstances that cause these kinds of things to happen. What they understand is disconnection. And at three months old, there was a break in the connection that existed. The baby, Moses, was discovered in this river vessel, in this basket that was floating on the water by Pharaoh's daughter. And she decided that she liked the baby. And apparently, she, unlike many others, she had the power to decide that she didn't care what dad had said was going to happen to these Hebrew babies. She could just take this one and keep it. That she could have this baby. 
The story tells us that Big Sister had followed along, watching what was happening to her little brother on the water in the basket. And as she saw the princess get him, she popped up at just the right time and said, You should find a Hebrew woman to nurse this child. Would you like me to go find you one? And the princess said, Yes, what a wonderful idea. So Big Sister ran back to Mom and said, Mom... The baby's been rescued. Now come and continue to care for him and take care of him. Till Moses spent the first years of his childhood as both the child of his birth mother, as she nursed him, as she cared for him, but also his adopted mother. An Egyptian princess who had no idea that she'd been tricked into this entire scenario. And as we read the story, there's so many holes that are there. So many things that we don't know anything about. So many things that we aren't told that we can only imagine or wonder about. We don't learn anything about what eventually happens to Moses' mother or his sister. There are those that assume, but it has to be assumption, that this sister later becomes Miriam, who we read about last week, becomes one of his partners in leadership. But, that, but that's an assumption. We don't actually know what happens to this sister. We don't know anything about the day that Moses was eventually removed from his mother. That she was pushed aside and pushed out of his life and his story. We don't get told what it was like for a young boy to grow up in a palace. Where he knew he never belonged. We don't get told anything about the longing that must have been alive inside of him to know what happened to his mother, to his father, to his family. It's likely that all that he ever would have been told once he was old enough to remember. Surely mom said some things before he could remember them. But once he was old enough to remember, all he probably would have ever been told is that when he was a baby, he was found Abandoned in a basket on the Nile River. And as we read this story, and as I have read this story so many times, this story is always one of those beautiful and powerful stories of our faith. As it talks about the miraculous things that God can do and the the providence in which God takes care of God's hero that he's protecting for the people. But this week, as I read back through the story and prepared, I wondered... How we might look at the story if we imagine that we don't know anything about what's coming after this. If we read this story as simply a story about a young boy, about a baby, a baby born into violence, a baby abandoned, a baby ripped from his family and from everyone that looked like him, a baby that's raised in a home in which he never felt like he fit in. Again, as we prepare for our adoption, we've been forewarned that adoption requires trauma. Us adopting a child means that a baby has lost a parent or multiple parents. It means that a home has been taken away. It means that that, that living in a culture and around certain people has been removed. There are traumas that surround this reality of adoption. And some of the difficulties of those traumas can continue to have an impact on a life all of their life. And and our hope 
in this journey is that we can be a part of trying to help bring some healing to the reality of those difficulties that were experienced in that life. But as we read Moses' story, we don't see that anyone helped Moses wade through trauma, piled upon trauma, piled upon trauma. All of the difficulties that he would have experienced, all of the effects of this trauma in his life, we finally see them overflow in verse 11. As he's transitioning into adulthood, as he's beginning to explore his roots and what his life looked like before. Again, there's so many holes, so many gaps, so many things that we don't know that we have to assume. Several years ago, we as a church walked through uh, some of Peter Scazzaro's stuff, uh, the emotionally healthy uh, or emotionally healthy spirituality. We, we looked through that together as a church. And as we talked about that, perhaps you remember um, that he says that that much of our life, much of who we are, much of our personality and our thoughts and our emotions, uh, our spirituality and even our history is, is stuff that exists underneath an iceberg. The idea that, that there's only a little bit of who we are that is visible, but that most of who we are, most of what we've experienced, most of our life is underneath the surface. Just like much of an iceberg, most of an iceberg sits underneath the surface. Most of it we can't see. Unresolved anger, trauma, suffering, unmet needs, unfulfilled expectations, loss. Now, yes, underneath that iceberg, there's also some good stuff. But we tend to not hide from that quite as much. We tend to not hope that that stays down there. It's the difficulties that we tend to not look for or not be honest about or not ever deal with. That ugly stuff that we hope always stays down there. But the difficulty is that when it is left undiscovered, it can and usually does fester. It grows uglier and more painful. To us and to other people who are in our life. And often we try and function without knowing these truths. Without knowing those things that are going on down there personally. Without knowing who we actually are or what we've come from. Or how we became this person that we are today. And the reality is that when we do so, we don't actually know all the truths of ourselves and who we are And when that reality is there, it is difficult for us to actually love ourselves. And in that truth, we don't love ourselves as God has created us, or even as God is working to recreate us. And if we can't learn to love ourselves, we can't actually love others very well. Now, we may fake it. Many of us do a pretty good job faking that we love others, even though we're not dealing with the issues that are inside of us. But it isn't real. It, too, is always faked, is always falsified somehow, is always manipulated. So Scazzaro in his book, and he's he's written several of them now, but he urges or encourages us to explore all of those things that are underneath the iceberg. Believing that we need to know what those things are, our past, our history, our experiences, all that we've journeyed through, and that we need to also deal with them. That if we don't, that we become a people, and and as the church, a gathered people, who ultimately are hiding from, or ashamed of, or guarded from all of the brokenness that exists inside of us. 
And when that's true, that we never truly learn to love ourselves or our God or each other. Instead, what happens is that we leak out this toxic and unconsidered pain. And we create damage on our own soul and on other people that we claim to love. This is Moses' journey. Because we get no evidence up to this point that he ever dealt with any of the trauma in his life, any of the difficulties, any of the struggles that he had walked through. He was probably angry. He had right to be. Probably had a chip on his shoulder. There was a special place in his heart, I believe, for the underdog. Partially because he saw himself as one. He was a victim with a heart for other victims. Because he knew what it was like to experience some of the pain that they had gone through. And yet in verse 11, as it tells us that Moses was grown, I don't think that's actually true. Moses wasn't grown. Moses was just older. Because inside of Moses, there was still this broken little boy who was desperate to be known and to get out. Scazzaro says that we as people can't be emotionally immature and spiritually mature, that those two things walk along together, that our emotional maturity is tied to our spiritual maturity. So if we are going to become a people who is spiritually mature, we also have to become a people who is emotionally mature, who's dealt with this stuff that's underneath the iceberg. So in Moses' journey, as we look to Moses as this great faith hero, at this point, there can be no real spiritual maturity because he still has this emotional, this, this life immaturity that is alive in him. He has not dealt with the issues of his past and what has caused him to be the man that he's becoming. So when he came upon this Israelite who was being abused by an Egyptian, we watch as all this unresolved stuff underneath the surface bursts out. We're told that he killed this Egyptian man in defense of the victim. But I think probably also in defense of himself and his own victimization, what he himself had experienced and how this pain he was watching impacted him. I wonder if in this he expected that it would make him into some kind of hero, both to himself and to his people, that now he would be seen as as a defender, as a man of great strength, as a man of great honor. But the story tells us it didn't work that way. Instead, that the toxic reality of his emotions and his soul continued to do damage on him and on the other people who he came in contact with. They didn't trust him. They had no respect for him. They were afraid of him. He was afraid of himself. I think that sometimes in life we try really, really hard to do the same thing that Moses did. To pretend that we have not experienced difficulties or life trauma or pains in our past. To allow those things to exist underneath the iceberg, believing that, that we can just press on and ignore it and overlook it and pretend it's not there. If instead, if we'll focus on hard work or helping other people or somehow becoming a hero to others, that we can just erase all that we've experienced, all that we've walked through, all of the pain that may have been there. And it might work for a while. 
It might be enough for a time. But I think that eventually our past catches up with us if it's unresolved. It catches up with us if we become resentful or spiteful. Maybe we experience burnout. We hit a wall and we don't have any idea what to do with it. We lose our faith. Or maybe we hurt those who we're trying to serve. I believe they deserve more. And I believe that we were created for more. The story tells us that Moses ran away. He ran away from the palace. He ran away from the Pharaoh. He ran away from his princess mother. He ran away from the Israelites. He ran away from himself. He just decided he had to get away. Out of fear for his own life, out of anger, out of all these things that were going on that he didn't know what to do with, he ran to get away. But what he found in the desert was the truth. Moses found himself. As Ruth Haley Barton in her book that I've told you kind of goes along with what we're doing and will help add some support to what we're doing. As she talks about this story in her book, she talks about this being an important experience that Moses had to have in solitude, that he needed to experience solitude. Now, he wasn't actually looking for solitude as we often think about it. Solitude being the idea of of time away with God, that he was going to spend time away with God. That wasn't at all what Moses was looking for. As Moses ran away, he wasn't even looking for God. He was just running. But Barton says, solitude will do its good work, whether we know what we're doing or not. And solitude did its work on Moses. Again, as I think about the holes in the story, the things that we don't know, we don't know how long it was that he roamed in the desert before he came across that well. We don't know how long he lived and worked for this family that had taken him in that he was around. We don't know how much time there was between him running off the shepherds who were attacking these young girls and eventually him marrying one of these girls, Zipporah. It's unclear how long it took him to recognize the ache in his soul. And we're not told what it was that helped him discover it or how he came to that realization or what it was that happened or even what he did with it in the moments that it first became clear. But if we read the story carefully and we look for what's going on, we find out eventually that he noticed. That he noticed and he named it. I think it's often true that we cannot become who God has created us to be. Until we realize we aren't there yet. I think we often can't be formed into the new creation that Jesus says he wants to make of us. Until we recognize that there are parts of who we are that we have to confess and reject and repent. That we have to move away from what is still old creation in us. In order for God, in order for Jesus, in order for the Holy Spirit to do the work of bringing new creation in us. We often can't find healing until we discover the nature and the depth of the wound that we've experienced. 
And the scripture tells us in verse 22 of chapter 2 that we read earlier, it says, Later Zipporah, it actually says her, but Zipporah is who it's talking about, gave birth to a son. And Moses named him Gershom. For he explained, I have been a foreigner in a foreign land. Yes, he had. All of his life. A foreigner in a foreign land. And he named that pain. And he recognized the damage that it had done to his own soul. Before he could experience the healing that God wanted to do in him, I think he had to recognize the truth of who he was and surrender to the idea that God wanted to do something new with him. He had to experience a kind of conversion Not the conversion that we often talk about, this time in our lives where we believe that a person comes to the place or needs to come to the place that they choose to follow Jesus as Lord and Savior and friend. This is a different kind of conversion, a different kind of transformation that hopefully continues to go along in our life even after we come to know and follow Jesus. Barton describes it like this. She says, conversion has to do with self-knowledge that brings with it an awareness of the discrepancy between what we are now and what we are meant to be. The discrepancy between what we are now and what we're meant to be. God was going to do great things with Moses. He was going to take him from the path that he had known and walk with him into a brand new future. God was going to use Moses to lead God's people towards the promised land. And that Moses would forever be a foreigner in a foreign land. But God was going to redeem that truth and that past and that difficulty and use it as a key source to motivate Moses' faith. And his leadership. It was out of that pain and the realization and the recognition of this difficulty that God was going to do much of the great work that would happen with Moses in his life. So, as we think about his story, I wonder what is it that God might want to make new in you and in me? What pain or suffering or disappointment is it that is in us that needs to be recognized and healed? How is it that maybe God wants to redeem our difficulties? Now, I'm I'm not saying that he caused them. I'm saying that God has the ability to redeem the suffering that we've experienced, that we've walked through. How is it that perhaps he wants to redeem them and make something miraculous out of those struggles? And what work is it that we need to do in discovering those truths and owning them and allowing God to do this ongoing work of conversion that needs to happen in each of us? In Scazzaro's work and his Emotionally Healthy works and in much of Barton's work that she's done, both of them would contend that we can never get to this space, that we can never be healed in this way, that we can never become all that we were created to be or meant to be without intentional time in solitude. And I think we see in Moses' story and elsewhere that that could come in at least two different forms. Either running away from everything or running towards God. Personally, I think the running towards God option actually works quicker. But either is available. 
Because in that space, we learn so much about who we are and who God is and what God is trying to do. In time alone with God, when we're willing to take it and when we're willing to spend that time, we're able to see who it is that we are. We're able to see what it is that God sees in us. And we're able to discover who it is that God has created us to be. Barton says that one of the primary functions of solitude is to settle into ourselves in God's presence. Solitude will help us find ourselves. It will help us find God. It will help us name what it is in our life that lies beneath the surface. And solitude will give us space to experience the relief of healing and wholeness that God desires for each of us. It's out of our time alone with God that we can be prepared and equipped to walk into something new. So real quickly, I want to I wrap up by throwing out um, just a couple super practical things as we think about what it is that we can do, what steps we can take, how we move into this time of solitude, how we spend this time with God so that God can do this first work of strengthening our souls. First, we have to create space for time alone with God. We talked about this some last week, right? We have to create space for time alone with God. Time without noise, time without technology, time without the distractions that come in life, time completely away from all of that, alone with just us and God. And I am well aware that that can be incredibly difficult and that it's harder for some of us than it is for others. And that in different seasons of life, it becomes much more difficult and much more painful. We have to find new ways or create new ways or find moments where we can get it. But we must create some space somehow. And maybe doing so means that we have to have conversations with some other people who can help us create and find and protect that space. Maybe a spouse or a roommate or children or even a boss or a coworker that we have to explain what we're doing and why we're doing it so that we create the ability to protect that space. So that we can make some room for the Holy Spirit to stir up the truth of who we are. So that the Holy Spirit can remind you of your beauty. So that the Holy Spirit can heal you from the pain that you've experienced in your life. We have to create space so that we can make room for Jesus to do this ongoing work of conversion that he wants to do in us. A second thing that I think is important is that we need partners in this journey. So as we're willing to deal with some of the difficulties of life and some of that stuff that's underneath the iceberg, we need other people to help us in this. It's possible, it's likely, that that means that you and I need to find a counselor that we meet with. I say, I need to, I don't need to because I have one that I see roughly every other week. Because I actually believe that every human being needs to be in therapy. That it's good for our mind, that it's good for our soul, that it's good for our relationships. Just as you and I know that we 
should, let me say should, I was going to say we go to the doctor and the dentist, but the reality is we know that we should go see a doctor or a dentist in order to continue to remain healthy. Counseling works in much the same way. We should go see a counselor because it helps us stay healthy. Now, I I didn't intend to say this, but let me say this as I'm talking about counselors. It's, It's not always easy. Some of them are really, really bad. They're just bad. They're not good at their job. Others of them aren't necessarily bad. They're just not who you need to be in counseling with. So it's not necessarily that there's something wrong with what they do, but that they're simply not the fit for where you are and for what you're doing. We, we know the same is true with other medical practices, right? That we sometimes go see a doctor and the doctor tells us what to do and we're not sure how we feel about it, so maybe we go get a second opinion. It's completely appropriate to go get a second opinion from a counselor. To meet with two or three or four or five in order to find something that feels like a fit. Now, a fit does not mean you found the person that's going to tell you everything you wanted to hear before you walked in the door. If they're not telling you hard stuff, they're not good at their job. There is hard stuff in counseling. It's hard work. But I am convinced that we all need this experience in our life. I think we also need a loving community around us who's willing to help walk through the garbage that we've experienced, the garbage that has been our life, that's willing to help pray through it with us and talk through it with us and sit with us in it when there's nothing that that they can do or we can do or anyone can do. We just sit in the reality that this was hard and painful. And it is my hope, it is our hope that we as the church can be that kind of people for each other. But sometimes we just need to find someone else. Sometimes it's not someone in the church. Sometimes it's another friend or another confidant. Sometimes it's a neighbor, a sibling, a spouse, a parent, whoever that we need to find who can walk with us in this. We need another person who can walk through the truths of what we've experienced, of who we are, and of what it is that we're becoming. Really, really practical steps. Now, the last thing, and I think what is the most important, is that this conversion, this, this changing the old into new, requires that we recognize what is true. That we confess what it is that we need to confess. And that we surrender to what God has ahead of us. These are some works that only we can do. We need a community. We need a counselor. They help us get there. We create time and space alone with God. That helps us get there. But ultimately, we get pushed to this place that in order for conversion to happen, we have to recognize what is true, confess what it is that we need to confess from our past, and surrender to what it is that God has for us in the days ahead. Friends, this is hard, personal work. But it's crucial for the strengthening of our souls. And for becoming who it is that God has created you and me to become. And there is nothing that God wants more for you than that. There is nothing that we as a church want more for you than to see each of us come to be exactly who God has created us to be. So we walk forward in this together. Pray with me, would you? Jesus, 
Savior. Bring hope and healing in our lives. Help us make the journey towards new creation. Do this incredible work of restoring our souls, of redeeming the pains that we've experienced, of giving us the courage to surrender, to find solitude and in it truth, and to surrender to who it is you called us and created us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.